0: Hello, and welcome to Conversations from the World of Allergy, a podcast produced by the American Academy of Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology. I'm your host, Dave Stukas. I'm a board-certified allergist and immunologist and serve as a social media medical editor for the Academy. Our podcast series will use different formats to interview thought leaders from the world of allergy and immunology. This podcast is not intended to provide any individual medical advice to our listeners. We do hope that our conversations provide evidence-based information. Any questions pertaining to one's own health should always be discussed with their personal physician. The Find an Allergist search engine on the Academy website is a useful tool to locate a listing of board-certified allergists in your area. Finally, use of this audio program is subject to the American Academy of Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology Terms of Use Agreement, which you can find at www.aaaai.org Today's edition of our Conversations from the World of Allergy podcast series offers a unique discussion surrounding a new study being conducted and coordinated by the National Institutes of Health, which is investigating the safety of administering a second dose of a COVID-19 mRNA vaccine in individuals who experienced a systemic allergic reaction to an initial dose. That's a mouthful, but we're gonna take a deep dive into it, and I know it's it's a very timely topic for many. This trial is currently enrolling participants. And to discuss today's topic, we are pleased to welcome the principal investigator involved in this study to offer more details as well as perspective. Dr. Pamela Guerrero is the Chief of the Food Allergy Research Section at the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Disease in Bethesda, Maryland. Dr. Guerrero's research interests lie in understanding genetic origins and underlying immunologic pathways of food allergies and other allergic conditions. In 2011, Dr. Guerrero was the recipient of the R Trust Faculty Development Award from the American Academy of Allergy, Asthma, Immunology. And in 2017, she was bestowed a tremendous honor as the recipient of the Presidential Early Career Award for Scientists and Engineers from the National Science Foundation. Both very impressive indeed. And we're very fortunate to have her today to discuss this exciting new study. Dr. Guerrero, thank you so much for taking the time to join us and welcome to the show.
1: Well, thank you for inviting me
0: oh absolutely and before we discuss some of the details surrounding your new research study i'd I'd like to learn more about your personal research career if that's okay i think it's always helpful and and frankly quite exciting to learn uh, from experts such as yourself what kind of got you into this career path Uh, so if you don't mind sharing how did you start on your path towards a research focused career well
1: honestly i i've been interested in research since i first learned about it as a career option When I was a high school student, I had the chance to work in a lab at the University of Iowa during one of my summers, and I just loved it. I ended up going to the University of Iowa for college, and I was in a program there that allowed me to do research all four years that I was there. And by the end of that, I was pretty certain I wanted to do a combined MD-PhD program. So that's when I made the move to the East Coast to do the MSTP program, the Medical Scientist Training Program at Johns Hopkins. And I've been doing research ever since.
0: Well, that's really exciting. Uh, if you don't mind me asking, going back even further than that, when you were growing up, it, whether it's you know, a school-age child or, or adolescent, did you find that you sort of just thought about things or asked different questions than your peers or even family members?
1: You know, I always loved science and I was always interested in the why, you know, any anytime that a question was brought up or we learned about something new in school, I was always you know, most interested in why does that happen? Not so much, you know, does it happen or how often does it happen? But really, what was, you know, what led to that? And so I, I was always one of those kids that was asking questions, I guess.
0: Okay. And here you are as an adult asking, uh, I'm sure, quite <laughs> different questions.
1: <laughs> exactly. Never ends.
0: Yeah. Well, along those lines, as you as you ask these questions and, and set about trying to uh, design and conduct research studies to answer those questions, what's the most satisfying part about that process?
1: Yeah, I mean, there's so many things I love about research, but one of the things I really do enjoy is just that challenge of figuring out the best way to answer a question that will change and and hopefully improve how we take care of patients. You know, I think most of us who go into medicine do so because we want to help people. And research really allows us to find ways to help people in situations where there aren't always clear answers. Um, You know, and then another, I think, aspect of research that I really like is the teamwork that really goes into designing and conducting studies, especially working with trainees and contributing in some way to their career development.
0: Oh, that's great. And you know it's interesting to me sometimes as we do our journal clubs from a you know academic standpoint of sometimes we'll sit here and take a research study and and sort of nitpick and tear it apart and talk about things that could have been done this way or that way. But that often neglects the fact that that study was planned years in advance. Uh, and there was a whole team right. that was working together to try to you know best understand and answer that question. Uh, so I guess the follow-up would be what's the most challenging or frustrating part about a career in research?
1: Yeah. So we do research to find answers, but as you know, sometimes the answers we get aren't so clear cut and we just end up with more questions. So that can be challenging. And then, you know, there's times where we do studies and we find out that, you know, the treatment or the intervention we were testing didn't have the benefit that we thought or were hoping that it would. And so that's obviously disappointing when that happens.
0: Sure. There's and there's really no do over button, is there? It's kind of Mm -hmm. (laughs) once you commit to it, you just need to see where you go. Yeah, exactly. Well, another aspect that really is is uh, so sort of complex during the COVID-19 pand- pandemic uh, are ways in which disparities have been highlighted across so many levels. And last year, we had Kim Blumenthal on our podcast to discuss how women in academic medicine, particularly those with a career focused on research, uh, really have struggled. Ah, uh, compared to their their male counterparts, or or compared to you know pre COVID times, and been unsupported in different ways during the pandemic. Have you faced similar challenges over the past eighteen months?
1: Yeah, thanks for asking that question. You know, I think it's a really important topic that we talk about. I think no one would argue that statistics are so clear that female researchers, especially those who are in the early stages of their career, have really been hard hit by the pandemic. And personally, my kids are older, so they're more independent and they didn't need as much help, you know, with online school compared to my friends and colleagues who had younger kids. Uh, you know, I think at this point, we're all just hoping that these last 18 months will lead to some real changes in how we support women and others who have major responsibilities outside of work, whether that's taking care of young children or taking care of elderly parents or, or even themselves if they have a chronic illness.
0: Yeah, it, you know, we're we're still obviously in, in the thick of things, especially with your research study that we'll talk about here next. But yeah, I do hope that we we've learned along the way and uh, that, you know, all these complicated issues just don't go away magically as, as the pandemic sort of eases at some point in the future. And I hope that we can support uh, women across all careers, especially those in academic medicine. Well, let's move on to your new research study, if we may. Can you offer some background regarding what we currently know uh, in regards to allergic or anaphylactic reactions to the COVID vaccines? Uh, Is this a common occurrence? Have we found any single cause? Uh, Enlighten us, tell us more.
1: Mm -hmm. I'm sure as you've heard, after the mRNA COVID vaccines were introduced into the general public, first in the UK and then here in the United States, there were almost immediately reports of people having severe allergic reactions after receiving the vaccine. Now, overall, those reactions are exceedingly rare. You know, the numbers vary depending on how you define an allergic reaction, but the rate of anaphylaxis is estimated to be somewhere in the range of 2.8 to 5 reactions per million doses of the vaccine given. That number is very small, but it is higher than what we've seen for some other vaccines, where the rate of allergic reactions using similar criteria is about one per million doses. But the million-dollar question, as you asked, is what's causing those reactions? And that's where we don't have answers yet. You know, the composition of both the Pfizer-BioNTech and Moderna vaccines are very similar. They both contain a nucleic acid. They have mRNA encoding the SARS-CoV-2 spike protein that's encased in these pegylated liposomes. And then both vaccines also contain excipients, which are these substances that are inactive, such as salts and sucrose, that help improve the stability of the vaccine. So at this point, we don't know which of these components of the vaccine is responsible for triggering the allergic reactions, or even what cellular pathways are being activated. You know, most of the time when we think about allergic reactions, we think of IgE and mast cells. But it's entirely possible that other pathways, whether that be activation of the contact system or the complement pathway, might also be playing a role. So at this point, you know, my answer is we don't know what those mechanisms are, or even if there is a single mechanism.
0: Sure, and it's it sounds like there's no easy culprit, such as oh yeah, by the way, there was uh, peanut protein in some of the vaccines or anything like that.
1: Right. You know, some other vaccines do contain egg, and, and you know that led to people with egg allergy being not able to receive some of those vaccines. But even that advice has changed over the years now. So we don't have a clear culprit in this case.
0: Well, given the lack of a clear culprit and also the fact that the COVID vaccines that are currently available don't contain, you know, food proteins or, uh, you know, inhalant allergens or anything like that, do people with food, medication or environmental allergies need to avoid any of the COVID vaccines or can they safely receive them?
1: Yeah, that question came up actually when we first started to look at the characteristics of people who had allergic reactions to the mRNA vaccine. So at the time, we noted that most of the reactions seemed to happen in people who had a history of allergic disease, and many of them actually had a history of anaphylaxis. And so that led to NIAID developing a prospective study to try and you know, really address that exact question. I think you recently interviewed two of the lead investigators on that study, Dr. Lisa Wheatley and Dr. Franklin Atkinson. And their trial is really trying to determine whether people who are highly allergic or have an underlying mast cell disorder are more likely to have a systemic allergic reaction to the mRNA vaccines than people who have no allergic background. So that is a trial that is still enrolling. So if you are someone or know someone who's been hesitant to receive the vaccine because of their allergic history, this certainly is a great opportunity for them to receive the vaccine in a safe and monitored environment. Uh, currently, the CDC is recommending that people do get vaccinated even if they do have a history of severe allergic reactions to food and other, you know, products um, not related to vaccines. Uh, The current guidelines do state that if you have a known allergic reaction to one of the components of the mRNA vaccines, including polyethylene glycol, that you should not receive either the Pfizer or Moderna vaccine.
0: I appreciate you highlighting the other study, and we're about to tease out some important differences between theirs and yours. Um, But let's go back to this concept of anaphylaxis for a second, because I think that causes a lot of confusion uh, among our colleagues, as well as uh, among the the general public that are listening. And you mentioned that it's quite rare from what we understand thus far in regards to the different COVID vaccines. But when it does occur, how does it present? Uh, What what would somebody watch for and how would they feel? And along those lines, as a follow-up question, are there different levels of severity or is anaphylaxis anaphylaxis regardless of, of how it presents?
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. So allergic reactions are definitely not all the same. So they can range from being very mild, such as someone who has just a few hives that goes away on its own without treatment, to someone who has a life-threatening reaction that usually affects more than one body system, such, you know, they may have vomiting, trouble breathing, or a drop in their blood pressure. And it's those very severe reactions that require immediate treatment, usually with epinephrine. And in the case of the vaccines, we've really seen allergic reactions that can present anywhere along that whole spectrum.
0: Okay. Um, are there other symptoms that may mimic allergic reactions that can, that can occur after a vaccine administration? If so, how can we tell the difference?
1: In some cases, this can be really difficult to know, you know, for sure, whether someone's symptoms are due to an allergic reaction or, you know, is it caused by something else. And we know that people who are very anxious can experience many of the same symptoms that someone who's having an allergic reaction might say they have. So if you're very anxious, you may feel difficulty catching your breath or feel difficulty breathing or feeling lightheaded or even a lump in your throat. Um, Other people who receive vaccines can also have vasovagal reactions where they essentially experience a drop in their blood pressure that causes them to faint. And so it can be very tricky to know exactly what's going on, but we can begin to sort this out by paying attention to the timing of when the symptoms started after the mm-hmm. vaccine was given, you know, the nature of the symptoms, and then how those symptoms evolve over time.
0: I, I had a fascinating opportunity to be involved at our institution. We uh pre-screened for those at higher risk to have a, a potential reaction to the vaccine or anybody really any staff member who was concerned about it. And uh it was so interesting to watch people walk in uh because they were so nervous that essentially they were having elements of a suspected reaction before they even got the vaccine. Uh <laughs> and right. what I mean by that is is you know they they were already short of breath or sometimes they had flushing already or tingling or things along those lines. Uh, so that was really just uh uh very eye-opening to witness that and see how people can have different symptoms that are completely unrelated to an allergic reaction.
1: Right, it's a really important aspect, I think, of even thinking about administering a second dose and looking at anxiety and the mental health impact you know, of giving a second dose is something that we're gonna be incorporating into our new study as well.
0: Excellent, well, speaking of, what question or questions uh, are your study, or trying to be answered by your study?
1: Well, The primary goal of our study is to determine how many people who had a systemic allergic reaction to the first dose of an mRNA vaccine will experience another systemic allergic reaction after they receive a second dose. So that's our primary goal. And then we also hope to learn more about the mechanisms that are causing these reactions, We'll also be doing some other immunologic studies, including assessing functional antibody responses to the vaccine, since many people are not going to be getting their second dose within that recommended three to four-week time window. Um, And then finally, we're going to be working, as I mentioned, with our colleagues in the National Institute of Mental Health to try and better understand the psychological impact of allergic reactions to the vaccine and how anxiety levels change before and after they receive the second dose. You know, we completely recognize that people who had a severe reaction to the first dose are naturally going to be very anxious about receiving a second dose and maybe even their first dose, as you mentioned. Mm -hmm. And so we really want to learn as much as we can about the mental health impact of our intervention and giving the vaccine, which we hope will help us counsel these patients better in the future.
0: Well, that's really great. And as you mentioned, the other NIH study that started recruitment earlier this summer really is looking at people who have not received any of the COVID vaccines to date whereas yours is very different because these are folks or individuals that have already received uh, the first dose and had a suspected uh, uh, systemic allergic reaction. Is that correct?
1: That's right.
0: So who's eligible for inclusion in your study?
1: We are recruiting people who had a systemic immediate allergic reaction
0: to the first dose of
1: either the Moderna or the Pfizer COVID vaccines. We are primarily focusing on people who had moderate to severe allergic reactions. For people who only had mild reactions or subjective symptoms that we're not quite sure, we are requiring additional evidence that the reaction was truly an allergic reaction. For example, we are requiring that they showed an elevation in their triptase, their serum triptase after the vaccine. And
0: what ages are you targeting?
1: Uh, we're targeting all adults, ages 18 to 69.
0: Okay. Uh, What about people who may not be eligible? What are some of the exclusion criteria?
1: So we're excluding anyone who had a life-threatening reaction to the first dose. So if someone needed to go on a ventilator to support their breathing after they had an allergic reaction to the first dose, they will not be eligible for receiving a second dose. We're also excluding people who are taking certain biologic medications and systemic steroids. And the reason there, we don't think this will necessarily interfere with the vaccine or increase the risk of having a reaction. But we're doing this primarily because it may interfere with some of our mechanistic studies that we're doing.
0: Mm, interesting. Uh, you know, we've heard all these reports, and you know, I'm sure you and you know people, individuals as well as as I do who have had more of delayed onset reactions, whether it's exaggerated swelling or flu-like, you know, symptoms or uh, interesting rashes that appear days to weeks after their their vaccine. Are those individuals eligible for your study?
1: Yes, those individuals will not be eligible. We're really trying to focus this question on those immediate allergic reactions that happen right after the vaccine. Um, but I agree with you. I think there are many people who are experiencing more of those delayed reactions, but uh, that is not the group that we are targeting for this this trial.
0: Okay. And what about prior infection with COVID? Uh, does that matter at all? No,
1: that does not matter. As long as uh, the individual is outside the quarantine window, they are still eligible to participate.
0: Okay. And how many people are you trying to enroll and when do you, uh, when would you like to have enrollment completed by?
1: So our goal is to recruit up to 100, 100 participants and we're hoping if all goes well to complete the study within the next 6 to 12 months.
0: Okay. So uh right out of the gate you're going to it's it's an ambitious goal but hopefully this podcast can help with some recruitment as well. And where's the study going to take place?
1: So participants who participate or come as part of the study will be admitted to our intensive care unit at the Clinical Center, which is located on our NIH campus in Bethesda, Maryland.
0: And what about those who live outside Maryland or the DC area if they're interested in participating? Uh, can they do so? And uh, if so, will their travel be reimbursed and arrangements made on their behalf?
1: Absolutely. So individuals who live anywhere in the United States can enroll in our study if they are eligible and we will be reimbursing them for their travel expenses as well as compensating them for their time participating. Uh, we also do not require insurance and participants will not be charged for any of the care that they receive.
0: Okay and so say somebody meets all the criteria and they're interested and, and you set them up and they travel to Uh, Bethesda, and um, they're admitted to the the ICU for monitoring, how many days should they plan on being there for?
1: So they should plan on coming for about four days. The first day, they will be getting a COVID test to make sure they don't have an active infection before we administer the vaccine. And then Mm -hmm. the next two days, they will receive either the vaccine or placebo. And then the fourth day, they'll go home.
0: Mm, okay. And what other types of tests will be done on participants? Uh, are they going to have blood draws or other you know, skin testing for allergic responses or things like that?
1: Yes. Yeah, so they will get a nasal swab, as I mentioned, to, to rule out an active COVID infection when they first get enrolled. And then we'll be collecting a number of blood samples through an IV that will be placed in their arm. And then we will also ask that they... Uh, we will collect urine um, as well, since that seems to be the most sensitive way to detect a number of the allergic mediators that we think might be important in these reactions.
0: Okay, so a bunch of sort of baseline tests uh, to get to assess various types of immune status and function and things like that. And then when it's time to give the vaccine, you mentioned is, they're either going to receive uh, active vaccine or placebo. Uh, is that, does everybody end up getting the vaccine at some point or it just depends on what what arm they get randomized to?
1: Right. No, thank you for asking. So we will include individuals if they had a systemic allergic reaction to either the Moderna or the Pfizer vaccine as their first dose. But everybody who participates in the study will actually be receiving Pfizer for their second dose. And that's really for practical reasons. Um, As I mentioned, it is a randomized placebo-controlled crossover design. And what that means is that one-day participants will receive either the vaccine or placebo, which for our study is saline or salt water. And then the next day they will receive whatever they didn't receive the first day. Mm. So neither the study team or the participant will know which day they received the vaccine and which day they received placebo. But to be clear and answer your question, yes, everyone who participates in the study will receive a second dose of the active vaccine.
0: Okay. Yeah. I, I, thanks for clarifying because I think that's very different than obviously all the, the clinical trials that were implemented for to uh, gauge the efficacy and safety of the vaccines before they were actually available because not everybody actually received them in the in the first part of the study. So I think that'll uh, help alleviate a lot of concern from those who may be listening. Well, what happens if somebody does have an allergic reaction while they're in your study? Do you just like sit there and, and, and watch it happen and, and watch it unfold or will they receive mm-hmm. treatment or what else happens after that? Yes, definitely.
1: So as I mentioned earlier, we are doing this study in the intensive care unit to be absolutely sure we are prepared to treat any reaction that a participant might develop. You know, the challenges will be attended by trained allergists as well as the ICU team, and any medication or equipment we need to treat, even the most severe allergic reactions will be at the bedside.
0: Okay, so it's very safe to do it in this way. This is really just uh, contingency just in case, correct?
1: Absolutely.
0: That's right. Okay. All right. And then if if a reaction does occur and treatment is required, does that then – do you have additional laboratory studies you want to do and things along those lines?
1: Yes. If someone does have a reaction, we will collect an additional blood sample after that reaction to try and collect or catch any of those mediators that may not last very long in the blood to learn more about what was causing the reaction. Uh, And we certainly won't send anyone home until they are really back to their baseline. If someone does have a reaction um, and they haven't quite recovered by the time, you know, they're ready to go home, we will keep them in the hospital longer until they feel comfortable.
0: Okay. Well, what happens after that first initial four-day visit and they they undergo all these these different tests and they receive the placebo and the vaccine, vice versa? uh, Do they need to come back in the future or are they done after those four days?
1: Mm -hmm. No, so we will follow up with them, each uh, participant by phone within that first week after they receive the vaccine, really just to check in with how they're doing, see whether they had any other adverse reactions to the vaccine that might have developed after they left NIH. And then we will also ask them to come back to our NIH campus twice more, once Mm -hmm. at eight to 10 weeks and then again at six months after they received the vaccine. And that's really so we can study how their immune system responded to the vaccine. And then at that eight to 10 week follow-up visit, we will also do skin testing, both to the vaccine as well as the vaccine components to try and determine if that is a helpful test in identifying people who had an allergic reaction to the vaccine.
0: Okay, uh, so I, and I, is it safe to assume that all future travel for this two subsequent visits will also be covered as part of the study? Yes, that's correct. Okay. And what if somebody wants to do some sightseeing while they're in town? Will you uh, pay to, you know, have them go on a hop on, hop off throughout D.C.? Or is that something separate?
1: <laughs> well, their extracurricular activities might be, might be on their <laughs> own, but we can certainly get them to D.C.
0: <laughs> just wanted to ask to be sure. Just, uh, you know. Uh... <laughs> Um, this is great information, and I think it's a really fascinating study. But if I may, I do have a tough question for you, um, because as you know, recent studies and reports out of some of the larger academic centers, such as Massachusetts General and Scripps, have shown that people with suspected reactions to their first dose of the COVID vaccine can often receive a second dose without having any reaction or any problems whatsoever. So along those lines, what, do you have any comments on that, and why is this study still important?
1: Yeah, thanks. I mean, it's a great question. I, you know, the results of these recent retrospective studies are actually really great news and provide us with a lot of additional reassurance that it is safe for us to embark on this prospective study that we're planning. You know, but as retrospective studies, you know, that were published, they do have some limitations and potential biases, you know, in terms of who was included in the study, how the outcomes were evaluated, even how the challenges were performed, including whether patients you know were pre-medicated prior to the challenge, as well as how the symptoms were evaluated. So in one of the, the recent studies from Mass General, you know, less than 20% of the participants had reactions to the first dose that met anaphylaxis criteria. And our study is gonna focus more on individuals who had those moderate to severe systemic allergic reactions. You know, I would say another advantage of our study design is that, you know, as we talked, all participants will receive both the vaccine and the placebo. And we hope that that will help us distinguish between those pseudo allergic reactions from reactions that are truly related to receiving the vaccine. And all our outcomes will be assessed by the same team systematically. Um, And then finally, I think the advantage of our current study is that we'll also be able to study the mechanisms underlying these reactions, which will certainly be important as we think about ways to improve this vaccine platform
0: going forward. No, that's great. And I appreciate you you answering that question. But so let's go back to something you just said, because this is really interesting to me and I think our listeners as well. So why on earth would somebody have a, a seemingly allergic reaction to a placebo?
1: You know, we see it all the time in in allergy, as you can imagine, you know, there's a lot of anxiety as you were talking with your own patients who come to clinics, you know, just the thought of getting this vaccine and potentially having a life threatening reaction alone can simulate symptoms that really resemble an allergic reaction. And so we recognize that and, and we certainly see it in other allergen challenges, whether that be food challenges or, you know, whatnot. Uh, so it's very common, and we recognize that. And it's one of the reasons that we've also incorporated, you know, the mental health questions into this, so that we can counsel patients better on how to make decisions and how to, uh, you know, deal with those feelings that they're having. So it does. Oh, that's really interesting. Yeah, I mean, you know, we know the vaccine is life-saving, we know the vaccine is highly mm-hmm. effective, and so we don't want anxiety to stand in the way of people who can safely receive the vaccine from receiving it.
0: Oh, that's great. So say you find out that uh, half of the participants reacted to placebo, but they didn't react to the actual vaccine, are you still gonna publish those results for everybody to to look at as well?
1: <laughs> A- absolutely. Any results we yeah. have will be um, published and, and shared.
0: Yeah. Well, I, I know many of us can't wait to see what you find out. This is really important and, and very interesting questions that you're trying to answer. So where can people go to learn more about the study?
1: So our study is listed now on clinicaltrials.gov. And we also have a website. Uh, if you go to go.usa.gov XFRBN. Uh, and then patients should also feel free to contact us directly if they have any questions about the study at all.
0: Okay. And for those listening, depends on how you get your uh, your episodes here. But if you go to our website, um, and if you can just look at uh, www.aaai.org forward slash you see a listing of all of our episodes, plus we'll put any pertinent links as well as links to this study in there as well. And then what about other clinicians who may be listening? Um, how can they refer a patient uh, to the study if they're interested or eligible if they're seeing them after a suspected systemic reaction to their first dose?
1: Yeah, we'd love to hear from you. So they can contact us either by phone or by email.
0: Mm. So they
1: can call us at 1-800-411-1222 or by email at niadfars at nih.gov. That's N-I-A-I-D-F-A-R-S at N-I-H dot G-O-V.
0: Okay, for a split second, I thought you were going to say 1-800-GOT-COVID. Sorry, I don't know. <laughs>
1: That's probably already
0: taken. That <laughs> no, was going to say. That's probably already taken for other reasons. Yeah. <laughs> well, Dr. Guerrero, I really thank you so much for joining us today. I know this is sort of late breaking, and and we, we were able to arrange this in a, in a very timely fashion, and uh, on, we hope that this does help uh, with your recruitment um, on some level. And uh, we just really thank you for your time. Uh, before we depart, do you have anything else that you'd like to add?
1: No, thank you so much for having me. I, you know, I really want to thank the Academy for helping us get the word out about this study. And just to reiterate that if anyone has questions at all about our study, whether a patient might be eligible or what the study involves, please don't hesitate to contact us.
0: Excellent. Thank you again. Please visit www.aaai.org for show notes and any pertinent links from today's conversation. If you like the show, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast through Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify, so you can receive new episodes in the future. Thank you again for listening.